welcome listeners to the Filmed in Canada podcast. I'm Alexander Cairns, and I'm joined today by William Lee and Jennifer Nelson. Jennifer is a fellow movie-going friend, and uh, we thought it'd be fun to have your perspective on this movie as well, since um, you may have comments on the movie from a perspective that uh, that Alexander and I don't have. This is a podcast about Canadian movies, yeah. and it might be the podcast about Canadian movies. Do you think? No, or is that incorrect? That's incorrect because okay. there's a, there is at least one other podcast that I've discovered called yeah. "It Came from the Woods," which is specifically about Canadian horror movies. Okay. I've listened to a couple of their episodes and some entertaining discussions over there. But um, okay. so then we're the other podcast about Canadian movies. Yeah, but we're yeah we talk about Canadian movies and um, we'll do it in as as long as we can, I guess. <laughs> Um, so thanks to listeners for listening. Thanks to Alexander's mom for uh, support and kind words. Yeah, we got our first iTunes review oh. from her, so that was nice. Um, <laughs> she goes five stars, so high fives all around. All right. Because <laughs> um, that's not nothing. So. Yeah, <laughs> and um, you know she had some nice things to say. Uh, we could actually pull it up and, and read it on air. F. Peets has to say five stars titled Teenage Werewolves want an honest review of what's what with your next Canadian film watch out for this dynamic duo as they have you on the edge of your seat to explore and cover every inch of what's Canadian with a fresh and new approach to movie reviews William and Alexander will keep you entertained before or after you hit the theater for your next Canadian flick listen now you won't be disappointed so thank you F. Peets <laughs> It's that's a uh, high mark for us to achieve. Let's, uh, let's go for it. Yeah. I hope my contribution just makes that review continue to be truthful. So, yes. <laughs> well, we're a group of, uh, of movie lovers, and uh, we decided to talk about Canadian movies. Um, I think we we come from different backgrounds, so we'll, yeah. we're offering different perspectives. Hopefully, it is interesting and entertaining. Yes. Yeah. Um, today we're talking about a recent movie, Room, um, which uh, which probably is still in theaters in a lot of places yeah, yeah. probably so yeah it's been in for a while now like it's been since october i think and yeah, it'll and probably it'll... stick around till oscar time just because it's probably. likely getting some awards yeah yeah was it mentioned in any of the uh, golden globe nominations on uh room has been nominated for best pic- best motion picture drama didn't get put into the comedy category which is good <laughs> um <laughs> Brie Larson's been nominated for Best Performance by an Actress in a Motion Picture, uh, but I'm thinking that is it. After we talk about Room, we're going to also comment on other movies we've been seeing uh, at the end of the podcast, so stick around for that. Uh, so Room, so released in 2015. Yeah. The director is Lenny Abramson, uh, who, he's Irish or he's Irish-Canadian? He's Irish. He's not, Irish. Not Canadian. Okay. Uh, the story's by um, Emma Donahue, and the screenplay is also written by her as well. Great. And she is Irish-Canadian? Yes. Great. So, but uh, lives in Canada, from what we've yeah. learned. Yeah. Funded by, looks like, Telefilm Canada, so certainly fits our criteria of a Canadian movie. Yeah, yeah. also shot in Toronto, mm-hmm. and um, the child star in the movie, Jacob Tremblay, uh, is also Canadian. Since it's a new movie, let's talk about it as much as we can without giving away the uh, key details. And uh, and then at some point we'll give fair warning to listeners that we're going to talk about the other details without regard to spoilers. 
So we're introduced to the main character, played by Brie Larson, who lives with her young child in an enclosed room. It's a small space with a bed and toilet. Uh, their cooking area, and uh, there's a skylight. Once in a while, we see old Nick visit the room, and he brings provisions, but Joy warns Jack uh, not to trust him, to be, uh, to be careful around him, if at all possible, hide from him. So the first part of the movie, we observe how Joy and Jack live in this enclosed space uh, that they're not allowed to leave. And before recording, we had a debate about whether to give away any more details about the plot. But since most descriptions of the movie that you can find on the internet and the trailer pretty much give it away, we feel it's fair to say that the other main section of the movie concerns how Joy and Jack reintegrate into the world once they escape from their captor. Um, How much did you guys like it? Because uh, I'm going to say that I liked it, but I think I didn't like it as as much as a lot of people seem to like it. The general public? Yeah. yeah. I think there's a lot of love for this movie. Totally. Yeah. Do you feel the love? I, I, I really love this movie. Okay. Um, I, for me, I really enjoyed it, but I think it was because of the emotion it evoked in me um, through the characters, obviously. I think any movie that does that, you end up enjoying and there's, I think for myself, I'm a registered nurse by profession. And f- from my nursing aspect, I, it was hard for me to take that aspect of my likingness of this film out based on the psychology of the characters and almost like putting myself as a nurse who maybe would have met these characters in. So your, um, like your emotional response to it comes out of um, like like sympathy for the characters and sympathy for the characters and I really did put myself in a nursing role and being like if I was a nurse caring for these people how do you help them yeah Yeah. and I feel like the actors did portray the psychology of someone who's going through that really well do you if you're looking if you're watching the movie from that perspective do you feel like the the manner in which the mother raised her child um do you find justification for it? Do you do you think it was the right thing to do, or do you do you feel that it was the wrong approach in terms of like shielding the child from the truth? No, I feel um, I feel like it was an appropriate thing because her, her herself she was a child, right? She was. I think she's still a child even when they do end up getting out, um, and she was just trying her best, and she was a very resilient um, character in that aspect. I think she was trying to obviously provide the best life for Jack while in this room, and the only way she could is to not show him that there's something more outside, to give him that false hope, because she had no clue if they would ever, Mm -hmm. in that moment, get out of their situation they were in, so why not just show him the the happiness of what they have? That's the way I took it. What about shielding a child from the truth of, of, like... Their situation? You know, the evilness of men. There's only so much she can really shield him from in that regard, though, because obviously they show, they show several shots of the kid peering through the cracks of the of the armor that he sleeps in, and so he, she, he gets an understanding of what's going on, and even when he ventures out of that armoire and um, the guy wakes up and, and you know, she, she goes to, to grab her son because she doesn't want the guy touching him, he, he immediately knows to be afraid of... of old Nick of, of this man that's that's keeping them trapped. 
And I think it's appropriate for her as well. I'm not a parent myself, but I think parents do that naturally, shield their kids, especially at a younger age, from negative experiences and also from people they deem as not good people. And in her situation, she couldn't do any different. I don't think she could have done any different. It's not like she... I, I don't think it would be appropriate for her to, her to expose Jack to this man and him to feel like he had a relationship with him because he wasn't... Mm -hmm. a person in his life that was ever going to have a relationship. Yeah. Alexander, what did you respond to uh, most most strongly? Um, I saw it twice. So I saw it at the film festival and then saw it again with you guys in the theater. Or I guess it was both in the theater. But um, <laughs> So the first time I saw it at the festival, obviously, didn't really know much a whole lot about it other than the general description i really like brie larson as as an actor we saw her in short term 12 a couple of years ago with it which i think we both quite enjoyed that, yeah, that and she was um, yeah. she's awesome in scott pilgrim obviously but is brie larson in scott pilgrim she's scott's ex-girlfriend in the punk band really with the vegan bass player oh my god <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, did not, I had no idea yeah oh, okay i love her even more now yeah exactly <laughs> i think without doubt the acting is superb in this movie. I might comment on that later. Uh, spe I guess specifically the two, Brie Larson and Jacob Tremblay, the, the mother and son. But, I don't know, watching it a second time, I wasn't as enamored with it. I think the first time I was just so caught up in this almost roller coaster ride of trying to get out of this place. And um, by the second half, I wasn't as connected with it, but I was still just so overwhelmed by the emotions that I was feeling at the beginning that... Uh, that allowed me to continue feeling positively about the second half. But watching it for the second time, I feel like the second half of the movie really struggles to find what its message is, I guess. It, it just, it goes through a lot of scenarios of what they would experience on the outside world, but I don't really feel like I understand how they're responding to them. I just... I'm, I'm just, I get confused by some of the choices that the writer and the director make in presenting their life in the outside world. And uh, we can get into some specifics of those, but yeah, I guess similar to what you were saying, William, like it seems like there's a lot of love for this movie, but my love for it is more tempered. Hmm, okay. Yeah. I, I guess my reaction to the movie is affected by what I was expecting. And knowing that it was a story about um, about this woman who is kept captive for several years by someone, by an abductor, I guess it sounded like a nightmare scenario. Um, I thought it would be something that uh, would be difficult to watch. And the first part of the movie doesn't come across that way. Um, you know, I think intentionally because it's about a woman who's trying to pr trying to present an existence of uh, of their reality to her, her child. Um, parental protection playing into that. The way that they live in, in the place, in room, was not the horror show that I thought I was expecting. And then subsequently, when they get back into the world, their reactions to the real world also were not... Um, um, I guess it wasn't enough of a contrast between what they experienced in the room, in the room and out of the room. It didn't seem like it was that different. In, in terms of like the atmosphere of the movie, so I, I actually I, I thought it was interesting that once they get out, it still feels as if they're trapped, like because they're still haunted by the the memory of this trauma. Mm -hmm. That well, I guess maybe maybe the kid you don't you don't really get 
as much of a sense of how Jack is getting used to the real world as much, maybe because it's being presented from his perspective. But um, I liked that. I like to a certain extent that that you get this sense that Joy still feels like she's in that room and she's basically just she's she's going through a deep depression and she's locked up in her room and mm -hmm. um, I thought there was some interesting mirroring going on I guess with with the first half and the second half yeah from that regard what do you want to talk about uh, Jacob Tremblay's performance now I think it's always tricky when you comment on like a child performer because they're not bringing years of of stage experience or life experience to a role they're just I think they're just taking commands from uh, from a director or, or their coach, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I think the kid is pretty good in the movie. So I think what I'm going to comment on is just the kind of direction they've given him, the, the way they've chosen to uh, portray Jack. When he's in the room, I hate that he is like a kid in a Disney movie. I hate that he's running around and like, oh yes, oh it's Christmas, yay! I get to play with my toys. Oh, I wanted, a, I wanted something. I wanted cake for my birthday. Uh. I hated that. I was like, oh my god. So the first part of the movie, which uh, again wasn't as nightmarish as I kind of worked up in my mind, it was kind of nightmarish to like be stuck in this room <laughs> with this kid. I just, um, I just felt like it was not the kind of behavior I would see from a child in that circumstance. And the, the voiceover narration that Jack provides, where he kind of interprets the world or his reality as best he can. Like He, he talks about um, outside the room is space, because he doesn't know that there's a world outside the room. That sort of like fairy tale logic that we hear, I don't think is reflected in his behavior, because we just see him as like a shy or scared boy most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, we don't see him with like a skewed sense of reality of the world. We just see him just kind of being quiet. So I thought those things didn't those things didn't really mesh. Um, I, w I would agree with that. I don't know if I was as annoyed with his performance while he's in the house, but I understand where that's coming from. Like where he where it's very very childlike and very innocent, and then you also see a scene where you're like. It's so contrasting of his behavior. But I, I liked, I thought he gave a very good performance. Obviously takes direction really well as an actor. And I think the scenes in the truck really impressed me the most. Because I think it would be very accurate of someone who had never seen the outside world. Right. And then all of a sudden literally has to save himself and his mother and be frightened and not know anything. Um, so I, I, I was very impressed with that particular scene with him. Um, and then also what happens after when he's found and everything. I, I wouldn't say that I was kind of annoyed in the same way in terms of how he lived within his world. I think, I think there's some justification to the idea that he would feel comfortable in that environment because that's all he knows and I, I, di I did get the sense that the mother was with that joy was really making it as livable and as enjoyable for him to to exist in this world and you know they had a television and um, she was obviously teaching him to read and and so he was developing like a normal child to a certain degree 
but I didn't like the voiceover at all. Either. I just feel like unless unless he's coming up with those words himself, it just comes across. Anytime, anytime I've seen movies like that, like I'm thinking of Beasts of the Southern Wild, which is from what like three or four years ago. But that was another movie with a with a child actor where it just felt like every time there was voiceover from the kid, it, it felt like it was a 40 year old writer trying to think of like how okay how would a five year old describe the situation. Um, a perfect example of that working uh, is uh, Days, Days of Heaven. It's a Terrence Malick movie from the 70s. And in that movie, there's a, I think she's like nine or 10 years old character. And um, Malick was trying to write voiceover for her and it just wasn't working. So he just brought her into the booth and just had her start describing the scenes. And the language is just so poetic and beautiful. And like, you can't even imagine, like, I, it just, I'm overwhelmed every time I see that movie and, and just the words that come out of her mouth and knowing that she actually created them. And then I think they, they did write some stuff after kind of getting the, the understanding of her cadence and everything like that. But I think it's a very difficult thing to pull off to, to really get into the mind of a, of a five or a seven or a nine-year-old and, and really portray how they would think. Um, I, guess, I guess specific details are going to be very um, uh, spoiler-laden. Mm-hmm. So, I think yeah. it's fair to say we recommend seeing the movie. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So, listeners, uh, be warned that uh, from here on in, we're, we are talking about some key details about the plot. So, if you don't want those details spoiled, you might want to uh, you might want to stop listening now. I think the scenes that I that were the most the most emotionally impactful for me was when Joy saw her parents again. I thought those moments just had a certain power behind them. Like how her, uh, her parents, you know, how they, how they would, would process the reunion, how they would process their, uh, their grief and their, and, and their guilt and, yeah. their, uh, and their happiness, right? Um, and also joy, what would that be like uh, if she had to process those similar feelings? Um, I guess that's what I thought the meat of the movie was going to be. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was, it was a little bit short in its delivery of, of those themes. Um, like the, um, the father character is played by William H. Macy and he, he gets just like two short scenes. Yeah. He's in it for not even 10 minutes. And yeah. But he has um, like, his reaction is, um, is uh, like very markedly not what you want a father to react. No. And yeah, and I think they also don't ever, there's no explanation on the parents' point of when she was abducted and if there was that final where the parents just gave up. Mm-hmm. That's never that's never explained or anything. In the, yeah, their, like, yeah, their experience. Um, their is, experience is while she's... Kind of unexplored. Yeah. yeah, with whether they thought she was gone or... Mm-hmm. And they do put a lot of emphasis on Jack. Yeah and their think, reaction to him. I think in general, the, the, at least for me, the second half kind of suffers from the fact that it's still being told from Jack's perspective because it doesn't, it doesn't allow you to get into the thoughts of the other characters in the movie. You don't, you don't really get an understanding of... Even, even the, the, the scene with, with William H. Macy at the dinner table and he can't look at Jack in the eye. That, I, I still, like, I've, I've read the screenplay and so now I can understand, like, what they were trying to get across there because there was some dialogue that they had cut out where he says specifically, like, I can't look at the product of this, this man who, who, you know, 
took your life away. But that's not said in the movie for whatever reason. I guess they just decided it wasn't necessary, but I feel like it's entirely necessary. And, and so I was just confused by what the other characters were thinking in that whole second half and, and really trying to understand what they were going through. Mm-hmm. The, um, the scene where the, there, there's a TV reporter who's like angling to get an, an exclusive interview with Joy. I think that scene is supposed to be more devastating than it actually plays out as. Joy seems uncomfortable in the scene, and she um, gets thrown a question that um, that she's not prepared for. But the way the for me the way the scene plays out is that you know that was well that's too bad um, you know she's um, she's gonna have to think about that she'll have to think about her response later, and um, it, it just didn't seem like it was devastating to Joy that that she had this experience on TV. But I think it's supposed to be a significant scene because after that is where Jack finds Joy in, um, collapsed in the in the washroom. Did you did you think that she tried to commit suicide? Yeah, you did. Yeah, okay. I, I think she definitely tried to harm herself. Okay. I, whether her intention was to die or not, they never explore oh. again. They never explore that fully. She, after that, she ends up going away for a while. So okay. then maybe it's just me because I thought. I didn't know that she had tried to commit suicide. I thought she, maybe she had a seizure or something. No, that was definitely an attempted suicide. Yeah, there, was there was a shot of a, of a pill bottle at some point. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. It was definitely, and from a medical perspective, that's okay. definitely what would have happened yeah. if she, okay. when she collapsed and yeah. gets sick. But. Okay. So the, 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 the TV interview is supposed to be so horrendous for her that she would try to commit suicide. Is that what we're supposed to, that's how we're supposed to link those two scenes, right? I think, I think so, yeah. yeah or or, or it's, it's a tipping point to a certain degree that, because you obviously you get the sense that she's going through this depression before that scene, before the interview, but that kind of triggers her to... I, I guess for me, it's, it's because when Joy is in the outside world, she looks tired, and she looks like she needs a lot of rest, which which is fine. But it looks like she's tired from you know from being lost in the woods for a few days, not from not from being held captive for several years. And maybe that's unfair for me to say that because I mean I mean, the you know a character returned to her home is going to react um, how she reacts, and maybe it is just like I got to sit on the couch forever. But I, it, it was just watching Joy back at home, and then not like a very strong negative reaction to the TV interview and then going from there to her attempted suicide I just wasn't I just wasn't feeling that those scenes all connected for me okay from in my background I've had experience with palliative care and with her it's almost I think a there is a scene where she's sitting in her room with Jack and you can tell um, she's basically she basically has she has died in her life she never gets that life back and you there's a scene where you can tell that she's she realizes you can't ever like my life is never going to be the same and she's she has to grieve that again i think like she's had to grieve losing her life more than once now Mm -hmm. so when she's looking at that photo and she has that resentment yeah like what what have you done or whatever that she says about the the other student yeah yeah. Like basically, she she realizes they've moved on, I'm gone, and it's never going to come back. And I think after that point, you you realize that she realizes that mentally, she thought that this was going to be a great thing to escape. And I think even then, obviously, there's no dialogue or perspective from her that maybe this is. But I gathered that maybe she thought maybe I should just have got, stayed in that place because mm-hmm. I'm never going to be back. 
I'm never going to be that that teenager again. Mm. Um, and she's only been around her child for however long she was in there. So I think that points out when she's looking at that photo that she realizes. So she's having, again, to mentally grieve her old life. And now she's outside in this world and she sees everyone's moved on and has their own life. And that, for me, that would be tragic if I realized that. Mm-hmm. I think for most people, um, and especially from a nursing aspect, you, whenever you grieve or mourn your own mortality, to have to do it more than once in your lifetime would be, would be very tragic and depressing. Yeah. So I think her response, I think I would have, I would have liked them to have a little bit more, pers- like actually have her have some dialogue yeah. of what she's going through because Jack would never be able to distinguish that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, great, thank you for that perspective. <laughs> yeah. the, on, on top of that, yeah, again, just thinking about that whole second half and, and really trying to understand the other characters and not just Jack, what he's going through, because I think there's only, really, there's only so much insight you can get into a five-year-old and, mm-hmm. and kind of what they're thinking and how they're reacting to a situation. But um, what really bothered me um, and sort of like disturbed me almost was her, like in a way her lack of care for Jack in that second half because she is so absorbed by her depression that she like because when she's in the room she's so attentive and and you know the 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 few moments that she does sort of uh, let her anger get the better of her she immediately is like oh my god I'm so sorry whatever but when she's when she's now living with her parents it's almost as if she's back being a teenager again and so she's like getting into these arguments with her mother and um, it it just really disturbed me that those were happening in front of the child. Yeah, I felt like it was a betrayal of her character that she, that she was such a conscious and attentive mother in this room. But then once she got out, she was she was allowing herself to she was allowing her emotions to get the better of her, especially in front of her child, and and um, almost inflicting more uh, more trauma on him because because really he shouldn't be he shouldn't be the or he shouldn't be the recipient of of those emotions that she's feeling they should go off into another room and have their argument and figure out you know oh well you know it was it was your fault that i got here because you know you told me to to be helpful to people or whatever her comment was there like that whole argument should have taken place in another room and should jack shouldn't have been there like that just really really bothered me yeah and that's also a point where i think you see um joy's mom she she i think she recognizes that as well because mm-hmm. i think I believe she looks over at Jack mm-hmm. and she stops. She just is like, no, I'm not, mm-hmm. not going to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for her, it would be very conflicting as a grand grandmother and a mother to have this all consuming mm-hmm. type of scenario. Or even just how she's like, like, why don't you play with your toys? Like yeah. she, she, like her, her demeanor towards her son changes very drastically. And I just, it might be true to to the experience of of going through that sort of trauma. I don't know. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure Miss um, Donahue did her research in that regard. But um, to me, it felt like a betrayal and um, something that sh- that given given what we saw in the first half, she would have been able to um, be more be more able to control her emotions and um, continue the same. 
level of, of, of attentiveness and care that she had for her child. Yeah. Or even the grandparents, like, uh, or I mean the grandmother and, and, her, uh, and her husband, um, like they're, they, they give her a lot of space to sort out things on her own. Mm-hmm. When you think, it seems like you know, they should be more attentive to Joy. Um, to help her through it, mm-hmm. or am I wrong? No, no, no. You're not. No, no, not at all. I just. I think it's a hard situation. I think until mm-hmm. you've gone through that, you never know how any human's going to react, and everyone's going to react differently. Yeah. Go through similar emotions, but not necessarily react all this all the same. And and I think I think ultimately what it comes to, where where it becomes an issue for me in the context of the movie is that. Um, I think it, I think it's valuable that you know a piece of art like this exists so that we can have a dialogue like this to discuss you know what how would you react in a situation like this? But I think where, from a filmmaking perspective, where it becomes an issue for me is that um, is that the, all those moments just hang. And again, I think it really comes down to the fact that Jack is uh, that the that it's being told from, told from Jack's perspective, and so you don't get any insight into the other characters and that and that. I think that becomes more of a hindrance. Well, there's um, the way that the I think you raise a good point about the way that it's told through Jack's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's naturally a high point to the movie. There's a climax to the movie, but I think the, the filmmakers intended another point to be the climax, and I don't think it works. I think the natural high point is the escape. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's uh, it's shot in a way that is is just like so suspenseful. Um, and uh, I think um, the best sequence of the movie. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. That was what really made me enjoy this film. Is I really I did get a gut heart palpating emotion to this scene. Mm-hmm. So I think that was where I was like I really enjoy this film. Yeah. I think and I think that's why the second half of the movie just feels like it um, it, it has it takes a while to get to the point because mm-hmm. we've had that sort of emotional. Um, well, you know, our our reaction to the to that yeah. sequence is just uh, is so strong that the rest of it just feels like the um, um, you know after the adventure is over, what do we do? We're going to sit around. We're going to sit around and reflect on it. Right? I think the um, director intended the emotional climax of the movie to be their return to the shed. Mm-hmm. That is supposed to be their moment when they can release this. The shadow that's hanging over them, right. and I didn't feel it. I thought returning to the house, returning to the shed, was just like touring the site. I didn't. I didn't feel like they were that strongly attached to it. No. I, I think for me in that in that scene, it showed how that's always gonna be. That's always gonna be an actually a positive reality for Jack. Do you know what I mean? Even though he's saying goodbye to the shed, he still has positive feelings towards that because he's such a young child. Right. Whereas Joy is always going to have mixed emotion, I think, even though it is a very tra- negative, I would say and overwhelming negatively. But she also, I th- and I, I don't know if it's because I'm a female. I'm not sure why I'm getting this, but she also gave birth to her son there, which was is a great joy in her life. Right. So she's still going to have a positive, and I think that's hard. You can see that where she's like, "We need to leave." Like, yeah. So I think she's kind of feeling that overwhelming negative experience, but then also seeing him be positive about it. And kind of realize if she, if she hadn't gone through this, she wouldn't have had Jack. I don't know where that's coming from, but I think for me, I, I saw that in that scene too. But I can understand where you're coming from and saying that. So I'm mm. not sure, but I, th- I think part of what confuses the message at that ending is the final shot of the movie, where 
I feel like it needs to end with them in the room. And Not them just, leaving. And just, and just, you know, you see that like it, it was kind of like out of focus and the feathers are drifting around or whatever. Or it was dust or what. I don't know. Anyway, um, but the final shot is like the crane lifts up and the music becomes uplifting and you see them walking off into the distance. And like you say, it's like that that should be their moment of relief and they've, they're finally able to move on or whatever. But I feel like going back to that place only, like you said, Jennifer, it brings up the mixed emotions. Like you're never you're never fully able to get rid of that, right? Like you're never fully able to move on. You're just able to get better and better at dealing with the trauma yeah and um that crane shot again i just feel like is is a betrayal of what the character's actual experience is because it's trying to give it this this hopeful uplifting ending and it can still be hopeful that you know they're they're there they they survived but for it to be this grand feeling of hopefulness as the camera lifts up into the sky i think is is a bit too much also that shot that shot leaves the viewer in the shed, though, or just hovering above the shed. Mm-hmm. Like we don't leave the scene with them. No. Um, like if it if it was about getting away from, it was about finally closing the door on this chapter. We should have been outside the fence, and they should yeah. have closed the door on the whole scene. Yeah. Or if we were inside the shed, it should have shown them exiting and shutting the door, and that that the end of it. Right. But I think um, I think that style of of crane shot and that sort of uh, cinematography it does sort of romanticize the scene yeah right? and yeah it brings it brings a level of of artifice to the to the filmmaking that just wasn't there in the rest of it everything is is very immediate and very close on the characters and the rest of it and then all of a sudden you're drifting off and and it feels it feels um it feels like the ending of any movie yeah and um that that was kind of when i saw that when i saw it the first time at the at the festival that final shot really pissed me off. And so that kind of framed my whole experience of watching it a second time was like knowing that it was going to get to this point of, you know, like operatic Hollywood nonsense that just wasn't, I didn't feel was warranted. It reminds me of, um, of Once, the, the musical. Same thing. That movie is, is very connected with the characters in the way that, that everything is shot and, and it just feels like it's happening in the moment and you feel the spontaneity of the music and everything. And then it ends with this stupid crane shot as it pulls out of the window as the girl's playing the piano and it's like, oh, everything's going to be great. Yeah. And it's like, well, no, they have gone their separate ways and, and it's, it's a bittersweet ending. But they're trying to make it into this overwhelmingly positive feeling and using a style of filmmaking that doesn't connect with with the rest of it well i can understand it once because that that is trying to be a romance yeah um so to try to aim for an ending that gives you a good feeling even if it's just like a through a visual cue rather than what's actually transpired mm-hmm. makes sense i i agree that probably the wrong shot to end the film on mm-hmm. i think what i think what we keep coming back around to is um is that we're not completely sold on the story being told from from Jack's perspective. Mm-hmm. We want to we want the story that's told from Joy's perspective. We want to know how Joy gets back into the world. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think I think maybe that's what uh, um, the thing that isn't quite connecting for us. Um, even though we 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 all like the movie, and we recommend it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, have either of you read the book? No. No, I haven't. Neither have I. Um, and I'm going to do something that is, um, I admit, is an unfair way to talk about a, um, about a movie sometimes, is what if they did something else? Because clearly they didn't do this. So it's just, and this is just us kind of um, 
um, armchair quarterback after the fact, right? But instead of like this linear narrative, what if it was a story where Joy, after attempting suicide, is trying to process the whole thing? And through flashbacks, we, we find out what her experience was, and it paid off with the escape. Uh, I mean, then, mm. then the natural climax uh, would, have, would have come later in the movie, and there would, there would be scenes where she could process her feelings, meet with her parents or counselors, and, uh, and, and try, to, um, try to make sense of, of the horror that she's experienced. Instead, we, get the, we do get a linear movie. You know, we lose the part that is several years of despair, that she would have experienced and we lose um, a little bit of uh, what it would have been like for her to raise Jack under the circumstances uh, and it's, it's very accelerated the whole planning the escape and the reintegration into real life so yeah. um, maybe it's, it's just that we were offered a very narrow uh, window into this experience is what we're commenting on mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Any, any other thoughts? Uh, I wanted to introduce a new, a new segment that we may or may not okay, let's try persist it. with. Yeah. Um, what other movies does this remind you of? Uh, there's an Australian movie called... Um, no, no, you go first. You go first. Um, okay. I would definitely recommend that everyone watch Days of Heaven because, I don't know, I, I feel like it explores similar themes in terms of uh, how to... Uh, how, how young people sort of figure out the world and, and um, how, how they react to adverse situations being confronted by violence and, and different things. And um, it's not as, uh, it doesn't, it, it's, not, it's not a plot line that's, that's quite as um, traumatic and intense as this movie is, but I think it explores a lot of similar themes and um, has some excellent acting and that's just like one of the best movies ever made. I'm reminded of an Australian movie called Bad Boy Bubby, which is about a man who is raised in a room uh, until his caretaker dies, and he is, he is then uh, left to fend for himself in the real world. We could say it's a similar theme, but not, uh, not uh, at all the same treatment. Um, <laughs> I was mentioning before, just The Lovely Bones, just because it's, I guess, about a tra- tragic situation involving a child and from a child's perspective. That's the Terry Gilliam movie, right? No, it's um, Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson. Oh, Peter Jackson. With um, Mark Wahlberg and... I always forget her name. From Grand Budapest. Rachel Weisz. Wasn't it? Or, or Rachel Saoirse Weisz, Ron- yeah, yeah. She's in it. Saoirse Ronan. Yeah. Is the child hmm. in it. Um, and I think the childlike theme and the voiceover of her telling the story of her murder was the only thing that really, I guess, connected with me um, in terms of another film. Cool. I actually just thought of another one. Um... The Enigma of Casper Hauser, the Herzog that we saw. Um, similar, I guess similar in a way, but that's a guy who like has grown up with no stimulus and, or anything. It's just locked in a room for like 18 years and then, and then gets out and tries to figure out what's going on. Yeah. Um, that's a weird one. Wow. Way to reach deep. For that. <laughs> yeah. Nice. yeah. Uh, we're going to wrap it up with uh, some our, um, one of our recurring segments, which is... Uh, what makes this movie Canadian? <laughs> We're trying to identify characteristics that um, recur in Canadian movies or, or tropes that they uh, rely on and stuff like that. Okay. Uh, I definitely recognize the location. I grew up in Toronto, and when they're in the when they're in the hospital, it was it was kind of weird because I was trying to figure out which hospital or n- yeah, because yeah. I don't I can't picture a hospital in that location because I I know specifically that's the 
Don Valley Parkway, and I'm pretty sure it's right at Bloor Street. Hmm. Um, but I can't picture the building on that side of the highway. So, yeah. One of the scenes, uh, looking out a window, you can actually see the CN Tower. Yeah. yeah. And the ice rink. There's, there's a scene where they're by the ice rink, right? By City Hall. I don't recall. When, when, they're, when they're outside of the hospital or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, and then the burger joint that they go to, I, I looked it up at the time. I can't remember what the name was, but um, that is a, an actual location in Toronto. And it was funny as well because I think you could see like a Wendy's sign behind <laughs> it. So they chose this very specific, like they didn't, they didn't, didn't go, go the route of, of trying to go to like a recognizable chain so that like Americans would be, oh, okay, this is something I know McDonald's or I know Wendy's or whatever. Yeah. Do they know Wendy's? Yeah. Yeah. Wendy's yeah. is American. I think so, yeah. And Wendy's is important. So they pick yeah. they pick a location they picked a location that only exists in Toronto, which was oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. Um and uh and our completely made up arbitrary rating system is based on <laughs> Canadian leaps. Um what scale shall we base this movie on? I think we're on nineteen, if we're going <laughs> by the prime numbers again. <laughs> okay, so uh, so out of nineteen, how many leaps would you award this movie, Jennifer? Um I would Award at 15 oh, leaves. Okay. Leaves. Leaves. Because it's like the yeah. maple leaves. Leaves, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with 19. 19. Let's do some math here. Uh, I'm going to give it 12 out of 19 leaves. Wow. I'm surprised. I thought you liked it more than that. Yeah? Yeah. But then our but then our rating system is completely made up and arbitrary. So I'm gonna be I'm gonna be very generous and give it um, and, and give it uh, 14 leaves. Okay. All right. Uh, oh, and I wanted to make a correction to a previous episode. Um, Backcountry we awarded infinite leaves, um, and so in that case, our system should incorporate. Um, an infinite rating for I Declare War, since that also took place in the forest. So I Declare War is now considered an infinite leaf movie. Does that make sense? I think, uh, I think you're playing with uh, technicalities and looking for a loophole. But uh, no take-backs. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> but you're it's the already, one who came up with the infinite leaf system. But we're already, we're already on record. You can't take it back. <laughs> I, think, I think we can make amendments to our ratings. <laughs> Um, did you guys want to talk about Star 80 at all? Or uh, The local Cinematech had a, um, a series that they invited artists um, to, to host a movie that influenced their work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was actually interesting in the introduction to Star 80. The, the woman who introduced it wasn't the artist herself, but... And didn't really, like, it wasn't really necessarily... The person who picked the film hadn't seen it until that yeah, night. That, yeah, so that was what I was going to point out. Yeah, yeah. that the... Um, the the artist who had made who had done some I guess portraiture work of Dorothy Stratton I'm not too familiar with what her work from what was. I sound it sounded like she took the centerfolds of Dorothy's work and kind of made it artistically yeah so but she hadn't actually seen Star eighty but just picked it because it was related to her work I guess um, oh. so okay. yeah we didn't really get any understanding of of what the relationship between her work and the movie was, but I guess they were both 
focused on the life of Dorothy Stratton, who was a was Playboy Playmate of the Year in what the 1979s, 70s, 79 or 78, 78 something like that. Yeah, and was subsequently murdered by her ex-husband, yeah. who then committed suicide as well. And Dorothy Stratton was from Vancouver, BC. Yes, which is, uh, sort of the local angle at the time. But I, I saw that artist's uh, work at the VAG okay. back um, some whenever it was. Yeah. Um, I think she, she cut up the pictures and centerfolds and stuff and like arranged them in collage or had actually like assembled them into like a 3D thing and okay. and I, right. I yeah. didn't think it I didn't think it commented on on like the exploitation of women in general or about the tragedy of, of, of Dorothy Stratton's story. I thought it was just an artist who took a bunch of Playboy centerfolds, cut them up and reassembled them. I thought the message was kinda of lost in, in what she did. But okay. yeah. Yeah. I, I would say you could kind of make the same comment about the movie. Um, I wouldn't say that it necessarily had any sort of pro- progressive views on the exploitation of women in these magazines or violence against women. It just sort of presented what happened to her in a very sort of like, here's, here's how it happened kind of way. Yeah. And just like a re- historical recounting? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there wasn't much of a commentary, I don't think. Okay. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. It's a lot of Eric Roberts his character being shown as a narcissistic crazy person crazy person yeah like there's a lot of him looking at himself in the mirror and things like that so hmm. i would agree there's no commentary it's just a face value of what happened yeah it was shot in vancouver but we both didn't really recognize much of the city in the no. movie hmm. yeah okay there's just that one part where i just recognized the one road sign because yeah. he's driving by boundary so yeah. And then the rest was not familiar. <laughs> yeah. Um, have you seen anything else lately? Yeah, <laughs> I started watching. I haven't finished it yet, but I started watching *A View to a Kill*. I've been watching a bunch of the James Bond movies. Yes. And that one's totally awesome. And it seems like no one likes it. <laughs> like I went I, halfway through watching it, I was like, "Wait a minute, is this considered one of like the better Bond movies?" And I went up online, and everyone was like. Terrible, terrible. This is the worst one. Like, what the fuck? And I was like, what the hell? I'm loving this movie. It was, I was having a great time. Like, California Dreamin' came on when they when he was snowboarding down the mountain. And, he snowboarded you know, down the mountain. Christopher was it California Dreamin' or was it um, California Girls? Whatever fucking Beach Boys, California <laughs> bullshit. I think, was, yeah, I I think it was David Lee Roth. <laughs> I thought it was Beach Boys. Uh, we should. Look, I guess we'll have to fact check that one. I, anyway. my, my memory of it was it was uh, David Lee Roth's, um, you know, I wish they all could be... Yeah, isn't that Beach Boys? I don't know. It, it was. I'm not. Again, we'll need our. Uh, I'll need our interns to fact check that. Yeah, we don't have interns. Oh, it's too bad. Then we'll never know. So no one will ever correct us. No, Let's just I'm say it was Sinatra's version that, <laughs> <laughs> that played on "Love You Too" and "Kill." But it. I don't know. It just seemed like the most entertaining Bond movie I've ever seen. Really. Just um, in the ter- in, on the level of like the goofiness and the absurdity, like yeah. Sky, I, I enjoyed Skyfall. Casino Royale is obviously great, but for like the really stupid, goofy ones, I, I really enjoyed this one. And it wasn't like horribly sexist in in the ways that the <laughs> other ones are. Um, yeah, I was having a good time. Like the, like Christopher Walken is like a horse breeder, and it's just like bizarre. It's just a yeah. lot of fun. Yeah, and Grace Jones is in it. That was like yeah. the main, as Mayday. Yeah, A View to a Kill was the first Bond movie that I saw in the theaters. Oh, uh, nice. My dad took me to it, and and I had a I had a blast at yeah. that time. Um, I think when I when I revisit it, I, I cringe a little bit because it's 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 a bit too goofy. But I think I think everyone 
uh, it depends on what mood you're in, what kind of Bond movie that appeals to you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, I, I love You Only Live Twice. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if that one's highly regarded either. Mm-hmm. And mostly because that is the basis for every parody of Bond that would come later. Like, all the Austin, Power movie, Austin yeah. Powers movies basically are just taking uh, the blueprint from You Only Live Twice and... Right. and, uh, and Having having fun with that, yeah. but I love like the, I love how like overdone you only live twice is, mm-hmm. how big it is. So that's that's great. If you like if you like a view to a kill, I'm glad. Yeah. I'm happy for you. Good times. Yeah. Also, the Duran Duran song is, yeah. is awesome. <laughs> yeah. I think I think just everything about that captures what I what yeah what I want out of just a stupid spy movie. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. I saw it at the uh, at the film festival and it got a it got a one week release in in theaters. Uh, the German film Victoria. Did you happen to see that? I did. Yeah. Did you like it? I did. I liked it a lot too. And um, why the film got a lot of press was that they were able to uh, film the entire movie in one take. It's almost three hours, right? But it's one uninterrupted take from like the middle of the night until the next morning. It follows this girl around, um, around Berlin who meets up with a bunch of guys at a nightclub, and then they, they hang out for the evening, and, and then it, things kind of get out of control later on in the evening. And when I first read about it, I thought it's going to be a gimmick. Um, this whole one-take thing is going to be just a gimmick, and I, I was very resistant for that reason. But I got into it. I thought it worked, having it done in one take. Totally. Yeah, you liked it, too. Yeah, I mean, just the... It, it's a, it's incredible how like usually you use editing to create the rhythm in a scene where you know the more cuts you're making the more tense it might feel or whatever or the or the lack of a cut can can imply tension as well because you're waiting for the release of something but the fact that they were able to bring you through the ups and downs of the emotions of the characters and and the intensity of of this situation versus the release of that situation mm-hmm. all without the release of an edit that takes you to a new location or whatever. It's all just following them around. It's its pretty incredible how they yeah, and accomplish that. And naturally, like those quiet moments that come into it. And I can look at those uh, from a logistical standpoint and say, like, well, they have to have a quiet moment so they set up the next set or something mm-hmm. like that. But it just feels natural within the narrative. And then when it, it does become a thing where the character is in over her head, I think you kind of sympathize with her and how you, you can't get out of the situation. I can't believe things have gone this far. And so I, I enjoyed it as a movie. I enjoyed it as a technical feat that they could pull that off. Mm-hmm. I pointed you to uh, a review in a local newspaper. Uh, and just to be clear so that people don't <laughs> think that Jennifer's disappeared, she just hasn't seen the movie. So Yeah, okay. I have no comment on it. Okay. <laughs> You can you can um, yeah you can offer feedback in terms of um, whether we're putting you to sleep. Oh no no not at all no. <laughs> we will move things along when you start nodding off. Yeah. I, I pointed you to this um, review uh, from a local critic um, in in one of the free papers. I'm not going to mention his name, but. Yeah, so the, the exact quote is, the premise here is that everything happens in real time in a single unedited take, but really, so the fuck what? All the most impressive stuff was done in writer-director Sebastian Shipper's advance work. Everything from that crowded club to surprisingly empty streets had to be locked down before the camera could be turned on. Of course, that's true for all movies, and 138 minutes is just too long for viewers to remember why they're supposed to be wowed. I read that, and I just thought, that is the most vulgar piece of film criticism I've seen in a while. I think it's, I think it's disgusting. Not because my opinion of the movie differs from that reviewer, but I just think, 
to use that kind of language in a in a professional review, in a printed review. I, I think it, I think it sets a mood that just is so completely dismissive of anything else about the movie. Mm-hmm. If you if you write those words to open your review, so fucking what? I think people get the sense that there is. Um, like nothing redeemable about the movie, or, so, yeah. or or his or his anger about the movie is just is is so intense. And, but and it's not rooted in any real commentary on what what his thoughts are on the movie. It's just it's just it's this long take. So what? And then the rest of the review basically just dismisses it for being, in his words, shiza uh, for those reasons. And and yeah, just dismisses it. I mean, it, it, the whole thing's like couple hundred words long like it's pretty short mm-hmm. so he had a very intense dislike for it but um and, and uh, you know I, I understand that um a professional critic he's probably got a he has a deadline and he's got to get probably five reviews out uh for his deadline so i think he took a shortcut on this one and um and was very dismissive and that's unfortunate i think it's unfair to the movie and i think it reflects badly on on uh the way that he writes uh, the other thing I wanted to point out is I, I really don't care for any sort of intellectual discourse around movies. Like I, 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 prefer, I just prefer to have the kinds of conversations that we have in these um, in these discussions. Um, the, the, at one point, he 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 says basically the movie's bid for dogmy style authenticity is crushed the moment Victoria explains that she's a failed musician and then demonstrates it in a piano playing scene so obviously faked they should have killed the camera right here, and I. I just again was kind of annoyed by that comment as well, and so I actually pulled up the the tenets of the Dogme '95 movement to compare against what Victoria is doing, and all of these rules: shooting must be done on location, the sound must not be never be produced apart from the images, or vice versa. Obviously, this guy points out in that same sentence that the piano was faked, meaning that it would have had to have been overdubbed sound. So it doesn't follow the rules of this what we think is a bullshit like theological movement not theological but intellectual right. movement that Lars von Trier set up but you think the reviewer by by invoking it saying that they've he's he's implying that the filmmakers are trying to follow the the dogma um, manifesto yeah but they're not at all he's using he's using this, this I don't think they are either he's using this intellectual jargon that is a shorthand to say well you know he's it's just another way for him to dismiss it but it doesn't even make sense because they're not following any of the rules of... It's not trying to be one of those movies, no. but he's he's faulting it for not following those rules. Uh, no, he's faulting it because it's attempting this this level of authenticity, but not in the same way that Von Trier and... Um, yeah. What's the other guy? Yeah. Thomas, Thomas Vinterberg. Thank you. There we go. Yeah. And we know what we're doing is, uh, I think, um, pretty removed from any sort of uh, like academic criticism of movies or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more of a casual conversation about movies, and I think we're going to get worked up about some of them, uh, whether we like them or not. But I just hope we never get to that point where we're just so dismissive of, of, of someone else's creative output mm-hmm. um, in a non-constructive manner. Mm-hmm. Um, if, we, if we did that, then I, I would think this enterprise is, is kind of worthless. That's our... Yeah. Dog that's me all. 95. Those are our principles. <laughs> <laughs> our principles, yeah. Love to... It'll be uh, 15, right? So we'll have to name it and yeah. put 15 behind it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's all I wanted to say about that is it's an unfortunate review. I think, I think people should check out Victoria, though I think nobody checked it out because it only played for a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this has been the Filmed in Canada podcast. 
featuring the musing our musings on room we have various ways you can get in touch with us or see what we're up to our website is filmedincanada.net all of our posts are there we're we're working toward getting some blog posts up on there been playing with the idea of writing about some blu-ray releases that are not available in canada despite being canadian movies which is very irksome you can get me on twitter at married to a fly and we have an email which is filmed in canada at gmail.com so if you want to uh, give us any feedback on the show please email there leave us a review on itunes as uh, f pete's did gave us five stars there first rating perfect five out of five and uh, i've been alexander cairns i'll, I'll still be william lee <laughs> and i'll always be jennifer Townsend. thank you very much